0: Good evening, can everybody hear me? Yes, Uh, thank you all for coming and welcome to what I know will be uh, an absolutely wonderful panel um, which has the uh, subject, the title, Family Planning, Why Do We Need a London Summit? And our hope is by the end of the next one and a half hours we will all know the answer to that question. Um, As I think everybody in this room knows, starting tonight, launched by the UK Department for International Development, DFID, and the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is a very exciting new effort to provide women who live in poor countries with the same access to family planning as women in rich countries have. And by so doing, it will enable these women, count millions of more women, to have good health, to have better futures and overall enhance well-being. Um, I'm Sara Sines. I'm a visiting fellow at LSE and senior advisor for the Packard Foundation and it is my deep honor to be moderating this session tonight. What we will do, we will begin with each panelist speaking briefly on the following issue why they think this initiative is important and what they hope will result from it. I will then ask each panelist a question to get the conversation going and then right after that we will throw it open to what we really all want, which is Q&A from all of you. So I will now introduce the panelists in the order in which they will be speaking, starting with the gentleman Carl, and Carl Hoffman. Carl is president and CEO of PSI, Population Services International, a nonprofit global health organization based in Washington, D.C. Um, PSI operates in 67 countries worldwide, focusing on family planning, HIV-AIDS, barriers to maternal health, and the greatest threats to children under five, including malaria, viral diseases, pneumonia, and malnutrition. Prior to joining PSI, Mr. Hoffman was a career American diplomat for 23 years, serving as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Togo, Executive Secretary to the Department of State in the U.S., and Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Paris. He is a graduate of Georgetown University and at the National Defense University. Our next speaker will be my friend, Ernestina Coast. Ernestina, I think who many of you know here, is Deputy Director of LSE Health and a Senior Lecturer in Population Studies in the Department of Social Policy. Her current research, which is funded by the Economic and Social Research Council of the UK and by DFID, focuses on the social and economic consequences of poor reproductive health in Africa. She is a member of the Poverty and Reproductive Health Network and her research in sexual and reproductive health um, has been funded by a variety of of very well and prestigious organizations. She has acted as advisor to a number of organizations including UNAIDS, Murray Stokes International and the Danish government. She's also been a visiting scholar at the African Population Health Research Center, whose director is here somewhere in the audience. Where are you, Alex? There, right there. That's the director. Um, She supervises PhD students with research projects related to sexual and reproductive health in China, South Africa, Kenya, and Malawi. Our third panelist will be the celebrated actress and humanitarian Ashley Judd, who has served on the Board of Directors for PSI since 2004 after serving as Global Ambassador for PSI's HIV Education and Prevention Program, Youth AIDS. Ms. Judd has visited legislators on Capitol Hill in the U.S., addressed the General Assembly of the UN, spoken at the National Press Club in the U.S., testified before the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and at the Condé Nast Savers Congress. She has served as an expert panelist on the Clinton Global Initiative. In addition to her role with PSI, Ms. Judd serves on the Board of Directors of Defenders of Wildlife and the Advisory Councils of the International Center for Research on Women, Demand Abolition, and APNE App Worldwide. Most recently, she has released her first book, a memoir entitled, All That Is Bitter and Sweet, which speaks to her deep commitment for global health. Our fourth speaker may also be familiar to some of you, Nina Uta. She is a master's student at LSE. Prior to coming to the LSE, she worked with Carolina for Kibira, an NGO that focuses on sexual and reproductive health of young people living in Kibera, one of the largest slums in Africa. Nina is passionate about improving the sexual and reproductive health and rights of young women a field that she will return to after completing her studies. And last, but certainly not least, is Dr. Gary Darmstadt, who leads the Family Health Division at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, one of the co-hosts and co-drivers of this entire initiative. This program in which Gary works is comprised of the Maternal, Neonatal and Child Health Functions, Family Planning and Nutrition. He joined the Global Health Program at the Foundation as Senior Program Officer for Newborn Health in February of 2008 and became Team Leader for Maternal, Neonatal, and Child Health and Interim Director of Integrated Health Solution Development in October 2008. He is also an active member of the Gates Foundation Global Health Team in India. Before we begin, I should let you know that there, the Twitter hashtag... For this event, this down here, no controversy. Um, this is being recorded and subject to what we hope will be no technical difficulties. This will be online soon. So with no ado, I'm going to sit down and invite Carl to let us know of his hopes and expectations for this
1: event. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um And uh, thank you to my distinguished co-panelists for being here as well this evening. You know, as the president of PSI, I I get the pleasure very often to introduce Ashley Judd as one of my bosses. Um, So I'm delighted to be on the panel with her as well, since she's a member of our board of directors. Um, And thanks also to the London School for loaning us the uh, prestige of its name and the venue and for so many of you for turning out this evening for what I hope will be a spirited conversation about the Family Planning Summit, which, as Sarah mentioned, starts tonight. Let me just give one introductory comment before I try and respond to your questions Sarah. I mean, uh, by its nature, a summit meeting, such as we will have tomorrow with representatives of governments and major world leaders like Melinda Gates, will focus on big numbers, uh, billions of dollars or euros or pounds, and hundreds of millions of women uh, whose needs are not being met, et cetera. Uh, But underlying all this and the premise for the entire conversation is really the story of individual women. Individual women, individual families, and individual needs. And I think it's very important for that focus and the individual rights of women, that focus not to get lost in the big numbers that will be the headlines of tomorrow's conversation. The fact that we come together in this sort of a forum tomorrow, or for this conversation this evening, for that matter, to talk about the unmet need for modern contraception and these hundreds of millions of women reflects the stark truth that there are significant barriers to the rights of those women being realized, to those women realizing their own fundamental rights. And those are barriers of supply and technology and demand and policy and, and fundamentally, they are barriers related to the patriarchy, which is strong throughout the world and which would prevent uh, and has prevented, in too many circumstances, women from exercising their rights. Uh, and the result of that is too many unintended pregnancies. Pregnancies, not enough intended pregnancies. Let's put it that way. So I think the conversation tomorrow will be a very good way to start to focus on that. There are, as I alluded to, you know, there are. The way we look at this from the perspective of my NGO, Population Services International, there are supply side issues that form a part of the obstacle that we're trying to confront, and there are demand side issues. And uh, working with both sides of that equation, I think we can come to a successful outcome from the perspective of women. The private sector is after all, the source of healthcare products and services for anywhere from three quarters to 80% of the poor and vulnerable women around the world. And so I think it's very important for the conversation tomorrow and in the continuing months and years to be focused on uh, where women are going to seek their healthcare services. Uh, And overwhelmingly in the developing world, that's from the private sector. So although we must work with governments and within a policy framework set by governments, it would be wrong for us not to focus on that big part of the solution for so many women, which is the private sector. We look at the private sector and the public sector together with what let's call the subsidized sector in between those two, something that social marketing organizations like PSI and MSI and others focus on, as representing the total market, the way to respond to the total need. And I think we would be wrong if we had a conversation tomorrow that only focused on one piece of that. In fact, the answer lies in looking at an integrated solution that looks at private sector, public sector, and the social marketing piece in the middle, the subsidized part of the answer. In the past, conversations like this And I think to some degree there's a little bit, there's a concern about uh, tomorrow falling into this trap, which I don't think it will, but I hope we can talk about that, being too focused on the supply side. And the supply side is tempting because it after all deals with things that are more tangible. Uh, technology, or supply chain management, or logistics, or moving products from one place to another. But the demand side in in this problem set is equally important. What are the obstacles to women having informed choice and exercising that choice? What are the barriers that they face that may be social or cultural or religious? And how can we help them work through those? So supply and demand, we look at those two parts together and we can make a market that will successfully, I think, meet the needs of women. Okay. Let me stop there. I thank hope you. that's what we will get to. Okay.
2: Thank you very much. Ernestina. Okay. So, so my role on this panel is I'm here as a social scientist. I'm here as a social scientist who's interested in reproductive health in general, contraception or the non-supply of contraception in, in particular. And for me that brings two perspectives to this debate. The first perspective is to thinking about what's the absolutely best evidence within reason that we can use to inform, to design, but also most importantly to evaluate policies, programmes around contraception. But a second role, and one for me that's equally important, is as a social scientist who is also a teacher and a supervisor, so thinking about the next generation of social scientists who are going to work on reproductive health more generally. So putting those two perspectives together, the reason why I think tomorrow is incredibly important is that it's an opportunity for us to put family planning back really where it should be, which is at the heart of the international development agenda. And there has been some neglect of family planning in recent years on the international agenda. And that neglect is really out of step with the sheer volume of evidence that we have Nowadays, The volume that shows so clearly that contraception reduces maternal mortality, it reduces maternal mobility, it saves lives. We know that contraception is cost-effective. It's cost-effective for women, it's cost-effective for their families, it's cost-effective for health systems. So the evidence is overwhelming. Where girls and women don't have access to contraception, they will sometimes take huge risks in order to end an unwanted pregnancy. And we know that in some settings, that means that up to a third of maternal deaths are being caused by the consequences of unsafe abortion. So the evidence is overwhelming. And I'm probably not alone on this panel, in that I've lost count of the number of times when I've been working in settings in low-income countries, where I've been asked questions about where can I get information about family planning. I've been asked that question by a pair of polygamously married rural Kenyan women, who between them had 17 children. I've been asked that question by a male university lecturer in Tanzania. And the message for me that comes through from that is that people want information. People want information so that they can make an informed choice about whether or not contraception is right for them. And if it is right for them, that they've got access to high quality services. Now the hashtag for this event is is no controversy, but I think there's an awful lot of controversy around this subject. I think there's controversy for the young woman that wants to use family planning, but her mother-in-law doesn't want her to use it because she hasn't produced a boy child yet. I think there's controversy for governments that don't want to engage with the issue of providing contraception to unmarried adolescents. So let's not shirk the fact that this is controversial. It is controversial, but I think we need to engage with the fact that some people find family planning controversial. And in terms of thinking about what I hope tomorrow will achieve, I really hope that it's a departure point above and beyond getting family planning back centre stage on the international development agenda, but is to think about, as a social scientist, what evidence we use. The need to move beyond simply counting the quantitative indicators of couple years protection and and need. Yes, they're important, but for me the debate is not an either or with the rights-based measures around the quality of those services. The equity of access to those services and asking fundamentally the question are the services high enough quality that people deserve? We also have to be open as social scientists to the unintended consequences, possibly of policies that become very target driven. We need to think about what evidence do we need to look at in case that happens. So I'm cautiously optimistic about tomorrow as a departure point, about saying that family planning really matters and it needs to be back absolutely centre stage.
0: Thank you, Mm Ernestine. Ashley.
3: Thanks very much, Sarah. And I'm very pleased and and quite humbled to be on this panel and to be hosted in such a prestigious venue. I have had the opportunity to go and, and Uh, see a lot in the world, but I never quite thought I'd end up at the London School of Economics.
4: Um,
3: And apart from being in the field visiting PSI's remarkable grassroots programs, many of which are funded generously by the Gates Foundation, my favorite place to be is in a classroom. So I'm really excited for the question and answer that will follow and hearing from you. And I would just like to briefly say on a personal note, I'm really pleased some of my family is here and my great hero, Dr. Malcolm Potts. So, um, it's bad form to have a phone in a classroom unless one is timing oneself on a panel (laughs) because I get a little chatty. I'm really uh, passionate about this issue and I, I think I'd like to start with three things. One is to discuss very briefly the current successes regarding the availability of modern family planning and the impact it is having this very year on poor girls and women around the world. We are setting a goal of, by 2010, meeting the unmet need for 120 girls and women in the poorest 69 countries in the world. And we have some fabulous target numbers as to the lives that we'll save. But what is it already doing right now? And it's important to take inspiration from the current successes. And I recently had surgery, I have anesthesia brain, and I'm not too proud to use notes for the first time in my life. I'd much prefer to dazzle you, but I'd actually more than that prefer to be correct (laughs) and not get a call from someone at UNFPA going, Ashley! Okay, so this year, in 2012 alone, uh, the availability of modern family planning uh, to 645 million women around the world has averted, or will continue to avert, 200 million 18 unintended pregnancies. That's a lot of unintended pregnancies amongst poor women. But let's break this down because 218 million unintended pregnancies is not the same thing as 218 million live births. Of those, only 55 million will be live births. Why? 138 million abortions, a large percentage of which are unsafe. 25 million miscarriages I mean think about if you have in your own life experience with miscarriage or someone you know in love the, the awesome grief of a miscarriage multiply that by 25 million women who are already leading exceedingly difficult lives um, we will avert 25 million this year 118,000 maternal deaths averted 1.1 million neonatal deaths, and that's described as from birth to 28 days. That's a lot. And then 700,000 children will survive to their first birthday as a result of family planning. Um, excuse me. Those deaths will be averted. Anesthesia brain. Ken brain for short. Um, and, you know, my husband and I, when we were first learning the global realities of child death. We were so staggered, we we came up with this however unfortunate, but very poignant and effective term to describe the born to dies. So by the availability of modern family planning to poor women, almost 2 million born to dies will be averted. Now, the goal, as hopefully, if you don't know already, you will by the end of the night, we we will prevent 100 million unintended pregnancies. We will avert again abortions and unsafe abortions, prevent maternal mortality. That is not three minutes. That is English three minutes. American three minutes is totally different. So let me just touch briefly on a narrative because I loved how Carl said that this really is about individual lives and meaningful experiences. In a peri-urban slum near Kinshasa, Congo, I met a lovely married couple. They fell in love as teenagers. He had a bum eye, which he couldn't take off his beautiful wife, whom he loved and adored. And after they had six unplanned pregnancies and had three more, living in absolute destitution. They went to very dramatic measures to try to end these pregnancies. Teresa's body couldn't handle them, they couldn't feed the children they had. They suffered from chronic diarrheal disease because they did not have an improved water source. They had one ratty old bed net um, under which only the youngest could sleep. That meant seven other people in the family were also chronically having bouts of malaria. Through anecdotal um, advice, because of course There's a disruption of traditional knowledge. Teresa took rounds and rounds of herbs, not in the correct uh, combinations. She did manage to terminate the three pregnancies, but nearly killed herself in the process. She was reached by door-to-door workers, Population Services International in Kinshasa. And it was, you know, we addressed those barriers to uptake. Victor was very concerned, you know, he was really suspicious in an appropriate and loving way. And now they practice modern family planning, they've taught it to their children, and they're reaching out to their neighbors who are interested. That's a success story, and we'll talk about a lot more of those in a moment.
0: Thanks. Thank you. And now, um,
5: Amina. Uh, first, I'd like to say thank you very much uh, for inviting me to be part of this panel. Um, as you can see, it's comprised of very distinguished um, panelists, and. I'm here mainly to show that everyone has a role to play um, in this important issue and primarily I'll be speaking on my experiences working with an NGO based in Nairobi, Kenya in Kibera, one of the largest slums in Africa and the NGO is called Carolina of Kibera where I worked with the sexual reproductive health program comprised of about 20 um, peer educators recruited from the slums. and so my experiences working with these young people was just phenomenal. And I think that to me is what's so important about the summit is that even people who were born into slums and they are facing such difficult decisions and difficult factors in their lives were so passionate about family planning. They committed so much of their time, volunteered for very small stipends, committed so much of their time to informing their fellow neighbors and their families and their friends on the importances of family planning. So I accompanied them for a year, sensitizing in the community, going door to door, and handing out free condoms and free contraceptives. And it really astounded me how passionate they were about this. I went in there to try and you know, be a part of this organization, and yet I was just dazzled by how these young people, that's all that they wanted to do. They were so committed and so passionate. And so I think the summit is very important, showing that yes, it's important to talk about the resources and to talk about what goes into supplying the, the family planning and big picture things, but it's also important to remember that the individuals on the ground are just as passionate and just as committed to the cause and want to see their lives better through this family planning. And so um, we met a lot of, you know, interacted with a lot of women and a lot of um, young girls, and it wasn't so much controversy that I experienced was more a curiosity. And so we did a lot of demonstrations and they laughed and giggled and asked questions. And so there's a need for it. It's maybe just the access that's a problem or the resources that they don't have. And so um, I think that's really what I'm here to kind of contribute to the discussion is that um, there's a lot of hands-on young people who want to be part of this debate, who want to be part of this movement, and to emphasize the importance of uh, family planning in, in low, poor areas, as well as um, other areas of developing context.
6: Thank you, Nina. Again.
7: Well, thank you very much for the chance to be here, and, and, and thank you all for being here to talk about this issue. One of the things that we have aimed through this entire effort is to get people talking. Family planning is not something that people have been talking about in global health and global development for the last 15 years. It it really fell off the agenda. We're lacking in political will. It's not something that donors have been talking about. And it's not something that countries themselves have been talking about and demanding. We found that, that donors lack the commitment in their funding towards this issue. And similarly, we find that countries lack the commitment of their own funding and budget lines in their budgets, for example, to say how much they're, they're spending on family planning. So one of the things that we really aim to do is to get the conversation going, and, and we think that, that that has begun. I think this is, this is uh, illustrative of that. Um, what we're really here for, and, and Carl, you said this at the beginning, is we're here because of the, the women out in developing countries who say that they absolutely <coughs> need this. This is life-saving. For them. Two years ago, I was out in the field with Melinda Gates in in, the poor state of Uttar Pradesh, talking with a woman about a program in maternal child health that that we were funding. And uh, Melinda asked her, she was about 25 years old, she didn't know exactly how old she was, but thought she was about 25, had five children. And Melinda asked her, Would you like to have any more children? And she kind of paused a moment, she looked down at the children at her feet, and she said, you know, I don't even know how I'm going to take care of the, of the kids that I have. You know, I've got a two-week-old. I don't know how I'm going to feed this baby after I'm, I'm done breastfeeding. I've got a two-year-old. I have no hope of sending this child to school. And, and uh, you know, she had had no opportunity to plan her family. She didn't really know what family planning was. And it was, a, it was an eye-opener for us. It, it was a wake-up call for us. Here we had a maternal newborn child health program that didn't have family planning within it. And this woman brought it home very clear to us that it is part and parcel of all of global health and development. It needs to be part of every program. And it was heartbreaking to hear her story and to know that it was kind of too late. I mean, she, she asked us to take the children home with her. She said, please take this two week old home. Please take my two year old home. I don't have any hope to really take care of them the way I want to. Uh, Another story in the same state of Uttar Pradesh, more recently, where this is in an urban slum where a group of women were talking about um, their plight, where often their husbands would would be traveling during parts of the year, and then they would come home, often would be drunk at night, would demand sex, and they had no way of protecting against uh, becoming pregnant at times that they didn't want to. They had no way of planning their family but then a program had come in and it introduced this and they now had that hope. And they they began to ask questions then about, so how am I gonna educate my child? I don't have a way now of educating them, but I know that that's what my child needs in order to break out of the cycle that I'm in. And now I can actually begin to think about it. Before I couldn't even begin to think about what to do to educate my child and to really provide all, all the needs that that child has to grow up to be healthy and and productive. So those are really the reasons why we decided to to come into this. This whole initiative began with a phone call from Andrew Mitchell to Melinda Gates and and saying that we want to do something transformative for family planning. And, And Melinda's response was, we are absolutely in if this is about impacting the lives of women, poor women who are wanting this. I hear their stories all the time. If that's what this is about, I'm in. If this is about a moment in time where we come together and we say nice things, and then we go on our way and it's business as usual, no way. We are not interested in that. And they made the commitment, and Melinda made the commitment six months ago, that we want to transform the field of family planning for the sake of poor women. We need political commitment, as I mentioned. One of the big things that we need is cooperation. Carl, you talked about a number of the different sectors that are involved here, and they will all be there uh, tomorrow. But what we're not doing effectively is working together. We we all have ultimately the same goal, and and, and we worked for three months to develop a very clear goal that, that we could come around and bring the best practices, bring the best evidence to bear on how to achieve that goal. But unless we come together and do it in a collaborative, much more cooperative way, and we really come together on procurement, on the supply side. We also come together in how we work on the ground to really meet the needs of women in a, in a coordinated way. If we can come together, we're absolutely convinced that we can achieve this. So we need better cooperation. We need, we need smart mechanisms. We need market shaping mechanisms that we've never brought to this field. We need much more creative demand creation as well. We need to look to sectors like entertainment, like uh, the private sector that that are so good at reaching out and and touching people and engaging them and going to scale with ideas. We need to be bringing people of unlike minds together around this conversation on how do we transform family planning. So that's ultimately what we hope to achieve. We hope this is just the beginning and that going forward we will all be holding uh, each other accountable for the goals that we've set that we'll be collecting the information that we need, as you said, not just the quanti- quantitative information, we absolutely need that, but we also need to hear the stories from the ground, from women, how are we doing in serving your needs? Are we providing the kind of services, the quality services that, that you're, you're desiring? Are we providing the kinds of products, the kinds of contraceptives that you really want? Are there gaps in what we're providing? And, and so that we can improve the programs as, as we go along. So that's ultimately what we hope to achieve.
0: Thank you, Gary. Well, we obviously have with us superbly knowledgeable and um, inspired panelists. So I'm going to ask each of them a simple question, different, and then we will kick it open to um, the audience. And I will ask the questions in order of the presentations. Carl, you spoke. of an area that I think is the key challenge, which is balancing the supply side, which we kind of know how to do, with raising the demand side, which we really don't know how to do that well. And we also know that lack of knowledge about contraception is not really a major obstacle anymore. Women have knowledge. That the real obstacles are much more fundamental to the culture and the socioeconomic status. What do you think, briefly, this initiative can do, and particularly the private sector or PSI can do, to help overcome that challenge?
1: Well, you know, I think the great contribution that Melinda Gates is making to this, it's not the deep pockets of the Gates Foundation, although uh, they've done so much good in the world. It's really, uh, as various of us have said, restarting the conversation. It's creating the safe space to talk about this. As you, as you said, Sarah, the knowledge is increasingly is there, but still maybe the conversation is suppressed or there, there, there's still stigma around it. The knowledge is incomplete. Bring it out into the open in the sunlight. Use all those tools that the private sector may use to communicate and change behaviors that they're aiming to change. Um, these are, this is a tool set that we need to apply to this challenge as well. And I think we can do it. She's giving us the challenge, this meeting is giving us the challenge to take it to a new level.
0: Thank you. Ernestina, my good friend.
2: (laughs) I need a softball question. I (laughs) promise you this will be an easy question.
0: Um, You spoke as you should. You're a researcher of the need for more evidence and the importance of evidence. We also know in some ways the production of evidence is the easy part of the equation. What's more difficult is getting that evidence used, not just useful and used. What would you expect and hope that the resources of this initiative will bring to enable that to happen, to help with that challenge?
2: Okay, Well, I think firstly, importantly, is, is you know, let's not reinvent the wheel. Where, where we already know some of the big answers, let's, let's not go there again and, and waste time, money and effort. But rather more importantly, once you've got that caveat out of the way, is to think about researchers have a responsibility when they do research that engages with policy, that engages with programs, in order to produce their results, not to change their results, but in order to temper their findings in a language and in a way and in a format that makes sense for the policy makers and the program people. But that di- that responsibility goes in both directions because sometimes, funders want to commission research in order to prove a certain point and some of the most awkward conversations I have had have been with with funders and say actually the data are not going to say that. that. They will not show that. They can't go there. So I think there's a responsibility in both directions.
0: Okay. Thank you. Um, Ashley, everyone in this room is so grateful that you are a champion of our issues and we need more people like you. So my question to you is... How can we get more champions, and what should we look for? What makes a good champion of our issues?
2: <laughs> I'd love to pitch that to
3: somebody else. Um, what makes a good champion? I think open-mindedness mm-hmm. and willingness. I think, you know, first of all, where all of this began for me was at university. Mm-hmm. I had a rather chaotic upbringing but once i landed in the classroom i really came to life i started to grow up and under the tutelage of some pretty wonderful feminist scholars whose compliments i absolutely lived for you know in the in the corridor after a class really nice commented class actually that kept me going for another month um, i i found that it was absolutely valid and appropriate to connect the heart and the mind and you know, I've been all over the world, but the most tricky journey I've ever taken is the 18 inches between my head and my heart. Mm -hmm. So being able to combine the intellectual Mm -hmm. and that unique pleasure of the scholarly with the vulnerability to feel, and there's a wonderful um, guy at Harvard who does adult education, Dr. Keegan, and in the preface of one of his books he said, when we really see another human being, we allow ourselves to be recruited to their welfare. So I think champions need to really see the world in which we live, to travel, um, to be willing to abandon contempt prior to investigation, as well as to do the canny work that our panelists are so clearly elucidating. And that is also what makes it rewarding for me. And the other part is, you know, finding a process by which I don't burn out. Because these are really difficult and tough issues. A lot of people your age are really interested in the modern slave trade, which, as we know, is far greater now than it was at its height in previous centuries. The majority of the girls and women I have met worldwide who were forced into paid, exploitative, or outright sex slavery, it began when they had children they could not feed and support. And family planning would help
0: avert that. Thank you, thanks very much. Um, Nina, you've had this wonderful, profound experience working in Kibera with young people. And what was particularly interesting to me was you work not only with young women, but young men. And our field has never really known what to do with men, or particularly young men. (laughs) So based on your experience, What advice would you give to DFID and to the Gates Foundation of how the resources of this initiative could help with young men in in this, to achieve the goals of the project?
5: uh, (laughs) Thank you for that question. Um, What advice would I give? Well, um, I think from my experiences, the group that I was working with was actually majority men. Um, and so that was also very interesting. That even our youth leaders were two men from, you know, from uh, our youth group, and I think they were just as passionate for it. I think maybe making the distinction: yes, this does affect women, and we are, you know, hoping to empower women and give them the choice and introduce modern contraceptives to them. But as you said, it involves this process involves men just as much as it involves women. And I think putting an emphasis on. Um inviting both parties to be part of the conversation is really important, and especially targeting young people because sometimes they can be a lot more open-minded. And so if we target the young people and try to instill that it's a very open conversation that needs participation from both genders, it will be, it'll be a good way to go forward. And um, I think it will maybe overcome some of the barriers that are being faced now by really trying to separate the two.
0: Thank you. Um, And Gary, lastly, you spoke very um, passionately about the woman in Uttar Pradesh. I think we could all picture who she was. To provide good quality family planning services to women like that is very hard. It's harder than doing it to providing those services to urban women or well-educated women. So how, as one of the major funders of this initiative, are you going to balance helping those women? with the very concrete, quantitative goal you've set yourself of 120 million new users?
7: Yeah, that, that's a great question, and that's a very important question. Um, as I said, we, we felt at the very beginning that we have to have our sight on a particular goal. I mean, you gotta know where you're going. But uh, along the way, what's absolutely critical, and, and that really needs to take over in terms of our thinking, is that what we're really about is trying to meet the needs of women and respecting their right to get quality information, quality services, and quality contraceptives. And in keeping with their own conscience and, and their own understanding to make a choice that's right for them. And uh, you know, without any form of coercion, without any form of discrimination, and that it absolutely be their decision um, we need to come around them with, with others that influence them and provide them the information as well so that she can exist in an ecosystem where she's supported to make that decision. Um, but as, you know, as we go forward and, and keep our eye on this goal, um, we also need to have measures on how we're doing on the things that I just named. And, and so we very much need uh, civil society organizations. We think that we need independent evaluators of how we're doing. Uh, we need to listen to women. We need to go back and talk with them. I mean, that needs to be the starting point in terms of understanding um, what it is that they want and need and how can we best provide that. Uh, but we need to go be going back to them on a regular basis and checking in, you know, how are we doing and having both those quantitative and qualitative measures to be sure that we have the right balance between driving forward, you know, with progress but knowing that we're doing it in a way that is compassionate, that's meeting needs, and, and that's ultimately improving lives and making them more healthy.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you all. Thanks to the, very much for not only your presentations, but the brilliant way in which you responded to those questions. So this is the part of the evening we've all been waiting for, which is the Q&A. So um, I think you just raise your hands and um, somebody with a mic will come and find you. And we're going to take three questions at a time. We only have 45 minutes. So we're gonna take three questions and then we will deal with those. So I will ask each person to say who you are and keep your questions short, please, because obviously we're gonna run out of time. So we will start with that lady with the um, uh, red jacket on up there.
2: Hi, my name is Frances Kissling. Um, A lot of current research about how to engage people holds that really values, particularly what's called mega values, big values, is what really gets people going. More than facts. Not that we shouldn't have evidence, but more than facts. So my question is really very simple to each of you. What are one or two mega values, big values that are behind your passion for this work. And do you think those are the values you'd like to project to the people you'd like to engage?
0: Thank you, Francis. Then um that is my
2: Hi, um, Pam Valens from Media Action. Um, I'd like to ask the panelists what role you think media and communication for development can play, not only in holding governments and actors to account, but changing individuals and community-level behaviors, moving beyond the knowledge question. Thank you.
0: And then this, this...
8: i Peter Munene uh, from DSW. Mine is actually not a question, but some suggestions for discussion or for possible consideration as the, we look at the summit. And uh, the first suggestion for consideration is that we need to move beyond uh, the debate about supply and, and demand and go into those that have already been uh, affected by this situation. How can they be helped? And especially, those that are supposed to go back to school because they have given birth. Those are, who are supposed to go back for vocational training. Uh, those who are working in uh, informal areas or in uh, as as cashiers. How can they be provided with support services for childcare, so that they they can they can at least be able to provide for the children that they have in an environment that is uh, secure and safe. And. Uh, the, the the other suggestion is about the the most areas that we find such women is either in formal sector or in agriculture sector. How can those sectors then be supported so that those women can make the the most out of it to be able to support the children that they already have. Uh, and and the last the last suggestion is uh, we, we've we've discussed a lot about. Uh, institutions that seem to be opposed to family planning and especially uh, singled out faith-based organizations or religious institutions. But when you look at, at it deeply, you find actually they are very supportive of family planning, right. except the different types of family planning. So we need to look at how right. best.
0: Thank you for your suggestions. And we'll have one, uh, one more with a person with a, a question. So that
6: over there. Yeah, thank you. Hi, Ransika Van Milling. I just have a question, just touching upon the last point that he made about religion. Um, I've lived in Latin America my entire life, and uh, mostly in Guatemala, uh, where 95% of the population is very, very, very Catholic. And, you know, even people my age would, you know, could go like, you know, I'd love to do family planning, but, you know, church reminds me every Sunday that it's not an option, it shouldn't be an option. So in that sense, I would like to know, what are you doing to, you know, go past that barrier of, you know, religious values? Are you talking, for example, with religious institutions, trying to convince them
0: as well, trying to involve them as well? How does that work, the whole religion? Okay, thank you. Thank you. I think we'll stop here for the first tranche of questions, otherwise it would be too difficult for the panelists. So I'm going to repeat the first question, to say, I, I'm not gonna have all of you answer okay. every question because then we'll never get through. So, uh, Francis's question of the one or two mega values behind your passion, what are they? Who would like to answer that? Ashley, thank you.
3: Elimination of suffering,
0: okay. it's very
3: simple. And when we do that, because for example, a quarter of all girls in Sub-Saharan Africa drop out of school because they become pregnant, We empower, economically, families and communities and ultimately nations. And in Congo, which is a failed state, and everything is a disaster, and the institutions are weak to non-existent, and even the people people coming up, they've never known anything but corruption. I was able, because there are miracles in life, to do some original math in graduate school, and there's six percent. Uh, prevalence of family planning amongst women of reproductive age which is above the lowest in sub-saharan nigeria is also very low and malcolm can correct me on that um, but of that cohort if they if if the women with an unmet need alone do not receive family planning by 2050 those women will have 89 million unintended pregnancies yeah.
0: thank you would you like to
7: well yeah. I, I would just add to that, the, the word that comes to my mind is hope. I think that people have to have a hope uh, for a, a better future, and I think particularly for their children. You know, we, we all want the, the best for our children. We all want them to have a better life than, than what we've had, or at least have access to the kinds of of, um, of uh, advantages that we've had, if that's been our, our, um, our lot. Um, and, and I just think giving people hope and, and a vision for the future is just extremely important to move them beyond that point so that they can begin to act and, and take, a, take advantage of the opportunities that, that may come along for them.
0: Thank you. I'm going to ask you, Carl, to address the second question on the role of media and behavior change.
1: Right. Thank you. I mean, I think it's obvious to all of us the role of media is huge, huge in terms of behavior change. Um, Interpersonal communication can be very powerful, and particularly in this context, it can be very effective. Uh, But when you take the lens back a little bit and look at the broader questions of behavior change and how to change societal norms, how to uh, make certain things acceptable or less acceptable, um, the role of media, I think, is really profoundly important. we don't understand well enough how to motivate the right sort of activity or action on the part of the media, always. I think all of us working in the behavior change field try and use media at all different levels. Uh, you know, Local radio, theater troupes, national television, uh, international media, uh, we're trying to do that, but I think we're making really sort of pinprick uh, progress. When you compare it to what the, the sort of fast-moving consumer goods companies do to change consumer behavior uh, to consume more or less of a product, I mean, you know, they know how to use the media, and it works. So I think we have a lot of lessons to learn from, from the private sector.
0: Ernstina, is there any research you'd like to
2: share uh, on this topic, on behavior change, or how media, the role of media? I think around the media, it's, it's also around the, the interface that we were talking about before, which is the way in which organisations and academics can engage with the media, and, and rather than seeing it as a kind of a, a them and us, is, is also to be thinking about how can you bring that together in order to be able to talk about the issues as they are revealed in mm-hmm. the evidence. Right.
0: Thank you. And Nina, I wonder if you could take a stab um, at the uh, role of religion um, uh, because <laughs> even though um, the questioner was speaking from the experience of Guatemala, Kenya is also a deeply religious conservative country. And from your experience in Kibera, how was, what is the appropriate way to engage with the religious leaders and religious organizations?
5: Um, from my experience, the religious leaders in Kibera are a lot of times the gatekeepers to the community and um, as you said it's a very religious um, Kenyan, especially Kibera just, it's kind of a melting pot for a lot of religions, a lot of tribes and a lot of different cultures coming together and as the gatekeepers it's very important for us as an organization to approach them and try to get them involved in kind of our activities <coughs> and the design of our programs and how we approach it and so we found that by kind of getting the religious leaders on board, which wasn 't necessarily always successful, but the few times that we did, it automatically gave us access to like their congregation and their followers and so um, even sometimes we 'd have Catholic priests who <laughs> generally you know universally and not really part of it, but isolated cases they they saw firsthand you know the impact and the effects and the positive outcomes of family planning and so they partnered up with our organization and they were very supportive And any time that we had events or we went out in the community um, sensitizing and distributing contraceptives. They, were, you know, they got their, their parish involved as well and their members and really encouraged them. And so I think really it comes down to an individual level. Um, I can't speak for obviously for all of Kenya or even all of Kibera, but individuals in certain contexts will, will be moved and will have the passion and will feel that you know what, it's in my hands and if I can have something to do with this and help in, um, you know, encouraging family planning and saving lives, as, um, as we've mentioned here, then they're part of it. So just hope that in individual cases that it, it comes to. Thank you. So we'll take
0: the next round of three questions. I'm starting up there. Please.
3: And while the mic is going, I would just love to say The nuns I've met around the world are some of the greatest advocates of family planning,
0: Yes, indeed.
3: particularly Sister Dee and Marlena in Guatemala. They're absolute and total heroes. And I think that to Gary's topic and combining with what Carl said, showing the success stories and illustrating that hope in the media is so powerful. For example, mother-in-laws being the gatekeeper, PSI goes door to door. We make friends with the mother-in-law and as we do, we unlock access to upwards of, at times, 20 daughters-in-law. And once we get that mother-in-law on board, we're all sitting around on the floor with um, anatom- anatomically correct uh, genitalia, talking about family planning.
0: Thank
3: you. Hi, I want to address...
6: Um,
0: Please say who you are. Oh, sorry, yeah. my name is Ruth White, and I want to address Dr. Dunstead's comment about working together, and Dr. seemss your issue about men. And, um, One of the things that is always interesting to me is how we link issues in global health. So we've linked HIV, AIDS with malaria and TB instead of HIV, AIDS and family planning. We have a very big campaign where we're nicking men's penises. And I think when we talk about condoms, if we're nicking men's penises, they're not likely to use condoms because they've already taken care of some part of that. But when men come involved then we have the issue of condoms, but well, we also have the, uh, the issue of permanent methods because in developed countries, most married couples use permanent methods at some point. And so that's not a distribution issue. It's another issue. So no. Uh, I think be a question. All right, uh, thank you. Oh, so many hands, please forgive me if I... Um, I think we'll go up a bit because I want to go to the people f- further at the back. Maybe that lady right at the back with the striped blouse on there. And please try to keep your questions very succinct and clear.
2: Thank you. Hi, I work for Girls Not Brides, a global partnership
0: of... Good for
2: you. <laughs> an awesome organisation. And thank you for speaking out on child marriage as
0: Absolutely. you do. Um, child brides are among those who could most benefit from family planning, but they're also among those who are hardest to reach. They are married at an age where they don't know their sexual reproductive health. Um, they, it's difficult for them to assert their wishes with their older husbands. Um, I was interested to hear you speak about quality family planning services and support. What might quality family planning support and services look like um, for child brides? Thank you. Great question. Oh, very good question. Um, that gentleman in the blue shirt.
9: Thank you. Uh, I'm Jeff Edmates from the International Center for Research on Women. Hi, Ashley. Um, I just would like to <laughs> reiterate one of the points that came up earlier in the discussion that has popped up a couple times throughout. And I think that it's really important to understand that family planning takes place within the context of gendered power relationships with, within um, communities, households, and couples. And I don't think that we necessarily always do such a great job of Discussing that and and seeing how it plays out in policy and fully understanding that and I would like to ask all the panelists what they feel the role or how important the discussion will be around Gendered power structures and how they feel going forward from this What, what would you all like to see in terms of policy and changes in the way that we do business around family planning that take better uh, or better take into account issues around gender and power which lead I think to many of the issues that we see as key drivers here such as, as early marriage. Thank you.
3: Can we extend this to like eleven
0: o'clock?
9: Yeah. This is yeah. awesome. Yeah.
0: And it's also orderly and British. Yeah. I used to be on panels where it's raucous. Yeah, well this is the problem because I think every panelist here would like to answer every question that all of you have, but we only have another twenty-five minutes and so I'm eager to hear as many, from as many of you as we can and as, get as much from this wonderful panel as possible, but actually you you got very excited at the first question, which on condoms and other methods, and I just wondered if you wanted to kind of address that. Was that the, the child marriage question? No, no, it was this lady's question.
7: On she got excited about all of them. You know. <laughs> <for you. laughs> yeah, welcome welcome to my life. <laughs> uh,
0: and the, the question really was focusing on um, oh, right. the, uh, the you know, condoms and right. longer-term methods. And, you know. well,
3: one, of, one of the wonderful things that has happened at PSI in the past three or four years is that we were the um, very grateful recipients of a very large fund to introduce long-lasting, reversible methods to poor women. and We started the project in 12 countries, and last year alone, with IUDs, for example, we were able to avert 100 million unintended pregnancies. It is a smashing success. And all of this is happening within the local context, taking gender asymmetry into consideration using social marketing and franchising, for example, of health retailers. Um, and it's it's it, it also includes, as we've mentioned multiple times, simultaneously triggering Demand and supply. So we have to, you know, procure high quality IUDs and then we have to either upgrade um, a local practicing uh, healthcare provider to safely do the insertions or train somebody from scratch and then we brand it so that you know as the word goes around people know that they're getting consistency and I'm sure some of you are, you know, human rights nuts, as I was particularly at your age. And all of this is about the AAAQ, as we say in health and human rights. Accessibility, affordability, acceptability, and quality. Um, And I'd love to say more, but I'm going to try to practice restraint of tongue.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Gary. I'd
7: like to respond a little Yeah. To that question as well, because I think you raised uh, another very important aspect of your question, and, and that was really around the integration yeah. of what we do. Right. I mean, in some ways, public health has been spectacularly successful at vertical programs, <laughs> and we've had some huge successes there, and they're very important. But on the other hand, one of our greatest failings is on really meeting needs on the ground in an integrated way, where people live. And you pointed out some great examples of, of where it's like, duh, I mean, why, why aren't we doing those things? Why aren't we integrating HIV with family planning? Right. I mean, there's some political reasons, there's some funding reasons, et cetera, but we really let these things get in the way of the greater good for serving people on the ground. And I think, I think you know, the next generation of public health people need to take a different frame in thinking about where, where can we really make the advances, where can we really innovate and I think it's often at those intersections of verticals that we need to turn and crisscross them and, and look at the channel light on, on the intersection.
0: Thank you. You know, again, I wish I could ask every panelist to respond to this question, but I want to get to the second question, which was on child brides. And I think child brides are really emblematic of extremely vulnerable women. And so um, I don't know if I have any volunteers here. No, Would I do? Right. Okay. Thank, Thank you,
2: response is that they we can't ignore them and I think there's been a huge assumption on the part of um, policymakers but also a sense of not really wanting to get into the marital bedroom and I think that really concerns a lot of policymakers so it's almost a case of well yeah she's 13 she's married but she's married therefore marriage equals safety And I say that based on the fact that I've done a lot of work amongst one particular ethnic group in Kenya and Tanzania, where it's not unusual for a 13 or 14-year-old girl to be married to a man in his 40s. And you could see very, very clearly that the moment that she was married, services would ignore her because it was a case of, well, you're married, you're safe. The same is very true in India, where the pressure to produce a child within a year of marriage is so strong that young women who are married... completely ignored in many ways by policies and and programs and I think we need to get over our hesitation about getting into the marital bedroom when thinking about access to to contraception and not assuming that marriage equals safety because for a lot of young women and girls it's one of the most dangerous places to be. And if I could, uh, related to
1: that is the huge Mm -hmm. challenge that is in front of us and to which I have no easy answer and it's the, the reason for the existence of the organization We have to somehow we have to work on raising the age of marriage. Um, The the factors that go into that are, we would take hours to enumerate them. And our ability to influence them is limited. But we must start to work on that. We absolutely must start to work on that.
0: Thank you. And then maybe, um, Gary, you could take a stab about how this initiative, as it rolls out, will take into account the realistic the challenge of the imbalance of gen- gender of power? The subject from that, the colleague from ICLW.
7: Yeah, that, that's, that's a very challenging question. It's very much part and parcel of the issue. Um, I think the early marriage is, is a good example of um, where there isn't gender equality and where so many women just don't have a say at all in, in who they're marrying, when they're getting married, and what their life is like after that. that. That's certainly a huge issue, and that would be one, one policy that, that I think is, is extremely important. I think it's also um, very important that we sufficiently um, support people in, in their roles. Um, and you know, like, like for example, um, so many women after giving birth, and, and this is a question that we didn't quite, quite get to in terms of how do you support women after they give birth? um they're often doing basically everything you know they're, they're running the farm they're raising the children they're taking care of the health of the children they're thinking about the education and, and you know what kind of policies can be put into place to try to help for one support the woman in the things that she has to do um but, but furthermore to get society to come around and, and recognize that these are issues and begin you know, through a process of behavior change at, at all levels and with all kinds of different approaches and, and media uh, and interper- interpersonal co- communication to begin to address people's mindset and begin a process of, of uh, creating better equality between, between the two sexes.
0: Thank you. It's a profoundly important question. And indeed, we could be here discussing all of these late at night, so we'll, we'll take the next tranche of three. You know, I have to say, when Ernestina and I were planning for this, we wondered what we would do if nobody had any questions. So <laughs> clearly, we, f- we fretted about that. We actually had game plans, but... Just turn my mouth on. <laughs> you understand. So um, I'm actually going to work up there and then kind of work down so people close in don't despair. So there's a man I see right up there in the middle. Give him... And then the press will be next, even though
10: you're down here. Don't Thank you. My name is Paul Talley. I represent the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children. Uh, yeah. Ashley said, she quoted somebody, perhaps you could remind me who said it, when we really see another human being, we are recruited to their welfare. I'd like to ask the panel if they've ever seen an unborn child. I'd also like to ask Gary in particular, why his organization is partnering with the leading pro-abortion organizations throughout the world, groups like IPPF and their affiliates, groups like UNFPA, groups like Murray Stopes International, um, when some of those groups, for example, refused to accept funds under the Mexico City policy, refused to accept funds that were restricted from providing abortions. You'll remember that. I think there are several Americans on the panel here this evening. It's good to see uh, that uh, not all Americans are pro-life. Well, no, it's not good to see that, but we see that here. Um, I'd like to ask um, all the panel why they think that abortion should be part of the programs that IPPF and other organizations are promoting. And this is going under the hashtag of no controversy. Well, there's been plenty of controversy recently. Uh, not only over the abortion issue, but also over the statistics that have been put out, the false claims that the number one killer of teenage girls throughout the world, a headline from the Metro a couple of weeks ago, is pregnancy. Not true. When you look at the evidence that that claim was based on, George Patton's research in Melbourne, looking at WHO figures, we see that neuropsychological causes suicide and, uh, and other causes, are the number one killer of young women throughout the world. So please could we have a, a references to how we should try and ensure that data is accurate as well as well used.
0: Thank you. Despite what I said about starting at the back, I have a very um, a, a representative down here from the press who wants to ask a question.
11: My name is Celeste McGovern. Um, My question is uh, directed at Dr. Darmstadt because of your India involvement and your affiliation with the Gates uh, Foundation. Um, And Melinda Gates has mentioned in the past um, at her TED Talk this spring, for instance, that one of the aspects um, that have plagued these initiatives in the past are (coughs) coercive. Uh, programs Um, and we see just in the last two weeks um, uh, a report from the Times of India um, uh, says that the health department in the province in the region of uh, Jaipur in India for instance has has launched a campaign that will uh, start tomorrow um, in which uh, they are targeting 100,000 women to be sterilized within the next two weeks and, and um, the BBC and, and other sources, The Guardian, have reported recently this year on, and the Times of India, on, on numbers of women dying um, in sterilization camps in India and enforced, um, or or uh, without informed consent, campaigns in really horrific conditions that um, women in the developed world would just completely what, what, what exactly
0: is your question? I Gary? just wonder um,
11: yeah. how, how does um, the Gates Foundation intend to separate this initiative from these global campaigns, or okay. campaigns throughout the world mm-hmm. that are clearly um, a smack of colonialism to, to people right. within the to? Right.
0: Thank you. And then we'll take one more question from up here, maybe that gentleman up, up there on the keep going on the edge. Okay. Um, no, all right, you grabbed it, it's yours.
4: Okay. Well, fighting for women, human rights, we have to fight for mics as well these days. And question from Dr. Gary, you mentioned tactics regarding the use of media in promoting and creating awareness regarding uh, such kind of issues. <coughs> in my school time I worked for an NGO in Pakistan, where they were promoting women welfare, family planning, etc., they were using some tapes and cassettes to send those cassettes to certain ethnic. Uh, uh, they were translated in certain ethnic languages, and they're supposed to go to certain families so they can listen and have awareness regarding such kind of issues. But the CEOs of those NGOs were telling us that okay, do the rest of the literature because they don't understand it. But don't give the cassettes to those families. It will create an explosion socially. Now, there is a lot of aid going from the UN to Pakistan. And can we make those uh, donors, agencies, and that, that kind of aid conditional, so they can do this kind of work without any corruption? The aid is going from, I mean, Carl Hopeman might know that there's a lot of aid going to Pakistan now, promoting and they're asking for women, human rights issues. But the aid is not going to those women where they need it. Mm-hmm. The CEOs are not helping those NGOs in these kind of causes. Like the example I gave, I can give you lots of examples, right. but what should be the strategy? Thank Your you. comments. Thank you. Well, Gary, you're on the hot seat for these questions. Yeah, I so mean... Maybe-
7: so Maybe I'll start, and maybe some of the other panelists yes. may want to add in. Um, the, the evidence around the life-saving importance of contraceptives is incontrovertible. We have brand new evidence from the Lancet series showing that the maternal death rate, if contraceptives were not available, would be 1.8 times higher than it currently is. Rather than 290,000, it would be 272,000 more, 200 7200,000 um, more than that. Um, and, and that the, 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 it's, it's one of the most cost effective means that we can provide to improve health and development of, of the world's uh, poorest. And so, um, on that basis, we're working with the organizations that are best equipped to go to scale with providing contraceptives to women who want them. And MSI and PSI happen to be two of the very best, and and they're two of the organizations that are going to scale with providing women the choice of what type of, uh, what way in which they would like to plan their family, decide when and how many children to have. And so that's the reason that we're providing the funding to them in order to, to provide that life-saving opportunity for women all over the world, more than 200 million of them that are asking for that opportunity and that are literally dying without it. And, and so that, that's why we, we choose to fund in, in that way. Um, with regard to the other, the other question about India, th- this is an important and that, that coercion has happened at various <coughs> points um, in family planning programs over history, and, and it's absolutely to be condemned. It is it is something that we're taking very seriously. I mean, at the heart of this is uh, a woman's right to control her fertility, to control the ability to plan her family, and any way in which that is violated is is absolutely forbidden. Um, whether that's um, withholding information. That, that she should have or whether it's forcing her to do something that she doesn't want to do. Either one of them is unacceptable. And so we're thinking a lot about the kinds of accountability mechanisms that it's going to take to really make that a reality. Unfortunately, these things are still occurring from time to time in various societies. It's happened in America, um, ashamedly, not, not too Canada. long ago in America, yeah. that, that you know, this kind of activity was going on. And, and so you know, we need to come together and you know, we need civil society on the ground um, raising these issues, just as you did in, in asking this question. It's a very important question. And, and uh, we all need to band together in holding each other accountable that these kinds of things don't happen. They're absolutely not part of this.
4: You know, I
1: think if I could just elaborate a little bit. You know, uh, Many of the things we've talked about here the history of coercion that has tainted family planning programs in the past, or the need to accompany a young mother with greater social support, or gender power dynamics and the difficulty that that poses for this conversation, you know, these are not unique to the developing world. This, you could say those same things about the United States today. And, the, and the, I don't speak for the UK, but I certainly know the US experience. So we, we would be wrong to assume that these are only developing world problems.
3: And I would just like to say thank you, Paul, for bringing that up. I do think it's important that those of us who have differing views have a dignified and empowered and direct conversation about it. And we've made reference to the goals that are being set by the Gates Foundation and this Family Planning Summit, but I'm not sure we've actually said those numbers. By 2020, the goal is to empower 120 women in the 69 poorest country in the world with uh, family planning of their choice. That includes pills, injectables, implants, and IUDs. PSI, we don't do sterilization, some other organizations do, but that's not a part of the basket of services that we offer. And it is entirely optional. Yet there's a bit of a soft area there because a woman who is rural or perhaps illiterate, who hasn't been sensitized, may not want something of which she is initially fearful. But when she's giving the information in a culturally appropriate way, perhaps non-literately, she often then wants it. So I know that there was some debate recently. Oh, it's you know they don't want it. It's about education. And once the education is there it becomes about choice and if we are able to meet this goal and provide 120 million additional poor women with family planning choices it will avert 50 million abortions there's no controversy there in my opinion and i've always found it so peculiar that we have this debate because it's not family planning the best way to avoid an unintended pregnancy and therefore make obsolete the need for abortion.
10: Universal family planning here, we have 200,000
4: abortions a year. Doesn't work. Doesn't
0: work. But there would be many more abortions if there wasn't universal access to family planning. So I'm going to ask the rest of the panelists if they have anything else to add. No. Okay, let's have uh, the next tranche of questions. So, um, this gentleman here, no, um, keep, going. keep going, keep going, keep <laughs> going, yes, stop, I <laughs> think. <you. laughs>
6: <laughs> All right, thanks, uh, my name
12: is Elia Zuri from the African Institute for Development Policy in, uh, in Nairobi, and uh, uh, let me just, you know, mine is more of a comment. I think the issue about evidence is really very, very critical. We also need to pay attention to the evidence on the other side. Uh, Estimates indicate that about 5 million women in sub-Saharan Africa have unsafe abortions because they lack safe abortion services. And unsafe abortion alone contributes between 12 and 16% to maternal deaths. So I think we might have our ideological reasons for taking this position or that position, but governments have a responsibility to protect the lives of women and most of these women, <laughs> and most of these women, most of these women who are having unsafe abortions, they are getting pregnant against their will because they don't have access to family planning. Anyway, uh, but the main contribution I wanted to make—that is uh, just a footnote—was that uh, because most of the people here, we are scientists, and uh, you know, ICS is a scientific organisation. I just wanted to emphasise the importance of evidence in the whole process of making sure that uh, you know, the whole agenda of the summit is really successful. We know that in many cases in Africa, a lot of money has been put in family planning, but when there's no strong political will, there's no opportunity for programs to develop. There's no opportunity even for the private sector to develop programs. So it's extremely important that we should captivate and nurture the political will and commitment. And in the countries in Africa, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm very hopeful to note that things are changing quite rapidly. I mean, maybe not rapidly, but they are changing somewhat in Africa. A lot of leaders are now becoming more willing to support family planning. Why is it that they don't support it? It's not because they want children to die or women to die. It's because they have priorities. There's food insecurity, HIV, AIDS, malaria, and so on. What we need is to put on the table the evidence that shows that investing in family planning actually saves lives. Investing in family planning helps to promote poverty alleviation, it helps to promote development. And that evidence is not readily available to decision makers. So what I want to emphasize here is the need for the, you know, for the summit to make sure that there's investment in you know generation and translation of evidence within the countries. And this process needs to be led by you know, locals, local champions, local scientific organizations, because they are the ones who interact with policymakers on an ongoing basis. Thank you. Thank
0: you, Ellie. And I think that there are many in this room of scholars who would agree with you. I'm looking at my watch. I think we have time for two more questions. Oh, please, you're giving me a <laughs> <laughs> The most enthusiastic jump up and down. <laughs> who will pass out if they leave this okay. room without <laughs> us? There's an enthusiastic young lady over there.
2: Um, Feeding off of that question, I was actually very curious, um, uh, amid the austerity discourse and increasing excitement and almost dependence on the private sector's innovation, um, what role is there for governments to innovate um, within, and in terms of their policies, to help the private sector do, do its okay, work. Thank you.
0: Nice, sharp question. We had a uh, jumper over here. Where's the jumper? Who was jumping? She? Okay, <laughs> this, this jumper. And please keep it short and concise.
6: I just wanted to... I'm, I'm grateful that there was an anti-choice comment because I think I can give you another example, it's Chile. Chile in the 1960s introduced contraception and reduced drastically abortion in in the continent. But now, my question is Latin America is facing a backlash very similar to what's going on right now in the US, which is a very um, strategical, uh, um, how do you say, legal attack on women's rights. I'm concerned by the fact that you're talking about family planning and putting behind a whole agenda on reproductive rights, Michelle Bachelet, who is at the, right behind you and uh, at the head of the UN right. Women, faces a president, an attack, a direct attack, right. brought to court right. in front of a constitutional tribunal for trying to introduce emergency contraception. Yes. Had the, pro, uh, the anti-choice lobbies you know, succeeded, yes. Chile would have gone back by 40 years When we were the example in the continent, by 40 years, by by actually cancelling all types of contraception, at least 70% of it, in the country. So uh, this is something that I would like to ask the panellists, not maybe to answer to me, but please bring it forward tomorrow in the summit. Okay.
0: So I think that's more a comment than a question, unless you would like (laughs) to consider it a question. Is there anyone who actually has a short, yes, sharp question?
3: Now we have a yeller, jumping yeah. Yeah, and yeah. yelling.
0: Okay, who's that? Okay. Does okay. okay. it benefit okay. the population control in developing countries more to Western consumers than it is to the okay.
8: inhabitants of... Um,
0: all right. Thank, thank, you. So we have two questions, um, and I think one, perhaps, in the interest of time, I'll give to you on the role of, of
1: uh, right governments and yeah. governments and uh, oh, right. and the private sector. Right. I, you to it would be wrong to think that either the private sector or the government is the sole source of innovation. Both are quite capable of innovation. I think. Um, you know, in the context we're talking about, the private sector has a big role to play and it would be a mistake not to include them in the conversation and to think about how they can help meet this unmet (coughs) need. Governments have the responsibility of setting the policy framework. Actors who are trying to make a difference have to work within that framework, but the private sector is a very important actor and we should work with them and improve their ability to provide quality services.
0: Right,
2: thank you. And Ernestine? Okay, Okay, so the, the big picture population control question. I think population control is the last thing on the mind of a woman who wants to avoid an unwanted pregnancy. Plus,
0: we don't control population, we control mosquitoes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I can't deal with it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I want to know, if uh, we've we've reached our time, time. if any (laughs) panellists have any last comments or Well, of course I do. (laughs) I knew it.
3: I've just been thinking about something that, to me, brings it all together. Carl, very appropriately in his opening remarks, talked about the patriarchy, which, of course, is this um, gender asymmetry that exacerbates all of these problems. And we've been talking about big numbers and policy and all that. And it does come down to an individual woman's life. And there was a beautiful young woman that I met in Nairobi. And this to me speaks to the unspoken, which is that none of these problems exist in isolation. So it is about inheritance rights. It's about land tenure. It's about civic awareness. A a, a wonderful job is done by Women for Women International, for example, who lets women know what their rights are. Um, It's about access, you know, women do, what is it, 98% of the farming and we own 2% of the land in the world. So this one young woman, her story encapsulates all of these asymmetries. Her mother died from HIV-AIDS because she was unable to protect herself in a marriage. Her husband had gone outside the marriage, contracted the virus. She died from AIDS complications. Then he eventually died of HIV. His brothers come in and kick her off the land because she has no inheritance rights. She has a boyfriend. She knows nothing about her sexual and reproductive health. She gets pregnant. After she's done breastfeeding him and the infant is starving because she is displaced, etc., she has no education. She makes the choiceless choice and turns to something she'd heard about anecdotally in the streets of Nairobi and she's working informally on the streets and she's picked up by a formal brothel. What happens? She gets pregnant. I meet her. She is pregnant with that second child while still working in forced sex. And again, having the same series of concerns. When she's done breastfeeding him, how will she get by? This, you, you, this is a very sad tale. <laughs> so it is also important to conclude with the stories of help of, of and hope. Um, but I, I, I guess I'm not really gonna do
0: that
11: right, do
3: that right now. Yeah. <laughs> but you see how it all fits together. And there are a variety of insertion points along this spectrum of disempowerment that could have changed her story.
0: And you young people, at the beginning of your careers with your professional lives ahead of you, I hope you will dedicate your life to the goals that the Gates Foundation and everyone on this panel has shared to improve the health and life and well-being of people around the world. We've now reached the end of our time. I will ask you to stay in your seats while the panelists leave, but before they leave, let's have a round of applause.